Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. In the 1970s, there were laws on the books against gay nightclubs. At a time when discrimination was rampant, we'll hear why Roanoke, Virginia was one of the hottest places in Appalachia to hit the dance floor. These young gay men and women came to Roanoke because they lived in these rural, rural counties. Roanoke was off the chain, okay? It was off the chain. And the pandemic continues to inspire more people to go outside. One result, they found more baby animals. We'll hear how everyday folks help rescue a record number of baby owls. (laughs) And orphan bear cubs. (laughs) And five years ago, Margaret Bruning and her husband were living in LA. They packed up their things and moved to rural West Virginia. Now, Bruning is learning to raise and shear sheep. It's very wild here. It's like the Wild West, except we're not west of the Mississippi. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. June is Pride Month. About 40 years ago, Roanoke was home to six gay bars. A lot of LGBTQ people lived in the surrounding mountains, and many were closeted. Roanoke was the place to go where they could unwind and feel like themselves. But these bars were against the law at the time in Virginia. Producer Cass Adair takes us on a tour through the history of Roanoke's queer scene with those who lived it. You see where the stairwell is right there? The building was right there. That's Don Muse. He's pointing to what is now this tidy street corner in Roanoke, Virginia. All of these little spots right here were holes in the walls, like little liquor joints. Don spent a lot of time in those little liquor joints. So did Peter Thornhill. You really could have a wonderful, seedy, fun, wonderful, seedy, I'll say it again, time. (laughs) Peter and Don are both African-American gay men. They're both in their 60s. In the 1970s and 80s, you might have found them at any of Roanoke's six, yeah, six, gay bars and nightclubs that popped up during the disco era. If you didn't come here, you died somewhere in the boonies. Let's face it, ladies and gentlemen. These young gay men and women came to Roanoke because they lived in these rural, rural counties. Roanoke was off the chain, okay? It was off the chain. One of those places that made Roanoke such a hotspot for LGBTQ nightlife, it's still standing, kinda. We've been through this door a many a day, you see? This door is the same door. It's the same door? It's the same door. Take a look at this door. There's no historical marker or anything like that. There's just a tiny red brick building and a sign reading Central Virginia Methodist Mission. But Don and Peter, they don't call it that. This is the straw. The last straw was once one of Roanoke, Virginia's most notorious gay night spots. And the best looking hustlers, oh my goodness, they were hot. It was like disco heaven. We would go to the club and they would cut on to, ladies and gentlemen, this is the first song for tonight, and it's Sylvester, Do You Want to (laughs) Dance? Suicide. It was. We killed ourselves on that floor. <laughs> then Donald Summer would slow it down. Yes, it's my last chance. Romance. Then Donald Ross would pick it up again. I was just doing a white t-shirt and tight jeans and a baseball cap, and I was damn good looking at it, ladies and gentlemen. Don was a handsome Afro-American gay man. You trust me. I didn't have any problem with picking up any of were tight. They were really they were tight. <laughs> to be clear, these spaces were not total utopias. Roanoke has a deep history of segregation, and some white people, they wouldn't cross the color line even to go dancing. There were clubs that you didn't see white gay men and women coming over there because it was still considered, you know, sort of iffy and challenging to be over there by yourself. But Gainsborough, the African-American neighborhood where Don grew up, 
it was a really friendly place to be queer. The first bar was called The Horoscope, and it was owned by a black gentleman named Ron Jones. The liquor was great. You saw as many boys from out in the boonies as you wanted to see that had never seen a gay black man before, so you know that was good. <laughs> it was just crazy. So actually, Roanoke's LGBTQ bars were probably less segregated than their straight counterparts. You might even think of these spaces as hinting at this brand new kind of Southern culture, one that was more tolerant, more racially integrated, and probably a lot more fun. There was just this one big problem. All of this was against the law. There was a big sign at the front door about the ABC laws. You can't serve known homosexuals, drug dealers, da-da-da-da-da, right there at the front door when we walked into a gay bar. Virginia law at the time stated that a bar's license may be suspended or revoked if the bar has become a meeting place and rendezvous for users of narcotics, drunks, homosexuals, prostitutes, pimps, panderers, gamblers, or habitual law violators. And the reality? Yeah, these bars, they were rendezvous, meeting points, for gay people and for sex workers. Sex work was just part of the scene there. Trans and gender nonconforming people might work the streets for a few hours and then head over to perform at a drag show or get a drink at a bar. And this kind of community with two kinds of lawbreakers, the quote homosexuals and the quote prostitutes, it attracted the police. You know, you had to be you had to be quick about getting into your trick's car. So, you know, if the police was undercover or they were driving around, they didn't see you, you know, walking. You couldn't be dressed up in women's clothing and heels and wigs and or you would be arrested. The policing was really stepping up in the late 70s in Roanoke under the Roanoke Police Department. Gregory Samantha Rosenthal is a professor at Roanoke College and the director of the Southwest Virginia LGBTQ Oral History Project. And a notorious sergeant of the vice squad there that was well known in the gay press. The gay people we've talked to, they remember how vicious the crackdown on both gay cruising at Elmwood Park and sex work down at the market was. However, their research also shows that it wasn't just the vice squads that pushed queer and trans nightlife out of downtown Roanoke. Another big culprit was a lot more subtle, urban planning. In 1979, this new plan, the Design 79 plan, went underway. The goal was to basically create what it is today, to attract tenants downtown that would cater to a declining white straight population. Roanoke Design 79, an adventure in civic planning involving citizens, business, and government in a unique cooperative enterprise is being partially underwritten by First Federal Savings and Loan, partner in savings with people who are building for their future. It was touted as extremely democratic. They did some new things that hadn't been done before, such as a televised call-in community input mechanism. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ted Powers. This is the second in the series of programs, Roanoke Design 79, and today we want you to join in because we need your input into this whole process. I think we've got a phone call. Hello. Hello. Yes. The proposal for the Cultural Center in downtown Roanoke is perhaps the most exciting proposal I have heard tonight. You say you like the idea of a cultural center downtown. Is right. That right. Okay, and uh, we're over here with, with another phone call. I would really hate to see the library moved. I just think you'd be wasting a really good atmosphere and a good thing to move the library. So this new democratic urban planning process, it helped generate ideas for things that a lot of people would want in their city, like cultural centers and nice libraries. But not all the comments were so innocuous. The Design 79 documents we've looked at talk about focus groups with white, heterosexual, middle-class people, and they said, we're afraid to go downtown because of the type of people who are on the streets down there. They never say trans sex workers, but we get a sense that the city is trying to push this population out of visibility. Gay cruising moves to other parks further out from downtown, and sex work is also pushed out onto more marginal streets where, according to the oral histories we've done, it becomes a lot more dangerous for the sex workers. And on top of that, Design 79 was not the only disruptor to Roanoke's queer nightlife in the late 1970s and 1980s. Something else was emerging at the same time, something that would further devastate the community. HIV. 
it was nothing for you to lose 100, 200, 300 people that you knew. The impact of HIV AIDS goes well beyond the individuals and the community who are suffering and caring for each other, but it does impact the way that larger straight society sees LGBT people and increasingly sees them as a threat. If you had gotten sick in the early AIDS epidemic, and let's say you went to the hospital like Georgetown University, they wouldn't feed you. They left your tray out front. They put yellow tape in front of your door. Your doctor came in on a mask. If you didn't have a friend, gay or lesbian friend, to help you, you were done because they were afraid. They were absolutely terrified. Uh, Roanoke renews its crackdown on sex work in the late 80s, early 90s. We have just arrests, arrests, arrests in a couple year span. These days, downtown Roanoke has plenty of places you can go and have a good time. That cultural center, the one that was dreamed up by the citizens and the architects of Design 79, it's right downtown. And I have to admit, it's pretty nice. But now, now that I know the history of this place, it's hard not to feel like there's something just missing. A whole queer world full of sex workers and drag queens and disco and drinking and dancing. So before I left Roanoke, I made sure to hit up the last remaining gay bar. And you know what? It wasn't that seedy fun that Don and Peter were telling me about, but I still got to dance. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Cass Adair in Roanoke, Virginia. That story originally aired on the public radio show and podcast, With Good Reason, back in 2019. So clearly, some things have changed in the past 50 years when it comes to how LGBTQ people are treated. But how far has the culture really shifted? After all, there are many places here in Appalachia where queer people still face discrimination. And many say they don't feel welcome. Reporter Duncan Slayton talked with people in West Virginia about whether they want to stay or leave their home state. In his conversations, one word kept coming up. Acceptance. Casey Johnson moved to Pittsburgh two years ago after graduating from WVU. The Martinsburg native moved there for a software engineering job. There aren't a lot in West Virginia. It's close enough to my family. They're only about three, four hours away. It's close enough to my friends in West Virginia. Like It worked out really well. Mentally, right now, I'm in the space of, I want to stay here in Pittsburgh, but I would also really like to move closer to my family back in Martinsburg. Casey identifies as pansexual and gender non-binary. Casey's sister is transgender, and she moved to Olympia, Washington last year because it felt more welcoming. Casey moved away from West Virginia for a job, but also to feel accepted. Yeah, the, the thought of living somewhere that I could raise kids who one day would turn out to be queer and the place wouldn't accept them. You know, they wouldn't be able to get health care. They would be turned away from even like schools and things like that. That alone is enough reason to move away from a place for me. Back in 2018, Pennsylvania was the second state in the nation to adopt statewide protections for LGBTQ individuals in housing and employment. West Virginia has a few towns with these protections, but no statewide law. Casey grew up in the Martinsburg city limits with LGBTQ protections. But my mother lives out in Berkeley County now, outside of Martinsburg city limits. So if I were to move in next door to my mother, I could be evicted from an apartment because I'm queer. I could be fired from a job because I'm queer and I'm not protected at the state level. Before seriously considering moving back, Casey wants to see state lawmakers ban discrimination in employment and housing on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, a bill known as the Fairness Act. And it hurts to come from a place where we preach how much we love people and how much we care about people, and then we don't see that in practice. Advocates started this year's legislative session with hope that this would be the year the Fairness Act passed. Late last year, Republican Governor Jim Justice said he supported the legislation. That moment was heralded by former Senate President Republican Mitch Carmichael as a turning point in the political landscape. Still, like every other year over the last two decades, the proposal never reached a final vote. 
On the other hand, lawmakers ban transgender girls from competing on sports teams consistent with their gender identity. It applies to both K-12 schools and public colleges. Here's Governor Justice in April, just days before he signed the ban into law. If I have to make a decision, veto, sign the bill, or let it go to law, I'm going to sign it. And I'm going to sign it proudly because I I really believe that, uh, that that's the right thing to do. David Lobb is a graduate student at WVU. He's studying to become an English teacher. He and Casey went to high school and college together and remain close. David acknowledges that he and his friends are all pretty liberal and says the recent legislative session showed him that his beliefs are out of line with the state's conservative leaders, particularly as he thinks about becoming a teacher. As far as like political disagreements, like that's just that's just life. Like you're going to disagree on politics. But when it comes to matters of, again, like not being able to discuss systemic racism and not being able to discuss sexism in the classroom because they're divisive concepts or um, not be, you know, not being allowed to strike to get a fair wage or not be transgender students in in my classes, not being able to just play sports. Um, That's I mean, that that's an eye opener that is so far removed from like my personal everyday reality. He's a former high school athlete and says he doesn't see the need to legislate whether or not transgender girls can play sports. I'm not personally very, like, really close to any transgender people. That's, you know, I'm sure to have transgender students, and I don't know. It's really frustrating to me that I would have to sit by and just watch them not be able to do the things that they care about, potentially, in school, one of them, one of them being sports. WVU paid for his education, and he says he owes everything in his professional life to the school and, by extension, the people of West Virginia. But as he considers being a teacher, he could make better money elsewhere and see state lawmakers who cut public education and this year ban teachers from striking. My thinking then becomes, okay, like, is it worth foregoing, you know, my my desire to live somewhere else if it means that, you know, while I get to make a difference here... I'm still going to have to deal with that on a daily basis. And I don't have the answer, but that's like that's the, the kind of hard truth that I think a lot of young people are facing. David has friends who are LGBTQ and thinks often about leaving the state for a place more accepting. He says that's the deciding factor. Is West Virginia a place of acceptance? Delegate Joshua Higginbotham is a Putnam County Republican. He was the lead sponsor of the Fairness Act during the 2021 legislative session. He was also the only Republican House delegate to vote against the transgender sports ban. He says he doesn't think his colleagues passed the transgender sports ban out of bigotry or hatred, but a lack of understanding, and says they likely haven't met an LGBT person. You know, we have hundreds upon hundreds of transgender young people in West Virginia, and and I'm accepting of them. Uh, as I have a transgender relative in my family, Uh, and I accept him for who he is, and I hope others will do the same. Higginbotham won his first election at the age of 19 and is now just 24. He says many of the people he went to high school with are in college, in jail, or have left the state. So when I talk to a lot of the people who have left, they remind me that it's the culture. And, uh, you know, I think that that we can do everything we can with regulations and tax reform and legal reforms. And those are necessary in order to attract businesses. But ultimately, if we don't change the image of our state, if we don't change the stereotypes that we're backwards or that we're you know, uneducated, which is not true, we're not. We're, we're normal just like every other part of the country. We just have bad stereotypes. But if we don't change that, people aren't going to want to move here. And more young people will try to leave. Uh, And I I really do believe that. Higginbotham says a cultural shift is coming in West Virginia and the country when Gen Z and millennials become the largest voting bloc. A study last year from the Center for American Progress found that the 2024 election is likely to be the first where these two younger generations outnumber the boomers. You know, I think that we're seeing it now with uh, other LGBT related issues, with racial issues. Uh, I think we're seeing it with criminal justice reform. I think we're seeing it with cannabis decriminalization. He points to a poll from the Public Religion Research Institute released earlier this year that found, for the first time, 50% of Republicans support gay marriage. So 10 years ago, that would have been an impossibility. Uh, and, and I think that that as we replace some of the baby boomers, some of the greatest generation, we're going to see these cultural changes. Right now, young West Virginians are creating that cultural change by voting with their feet and moving to states where they feel accepted. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Duncan Slade.
We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear from the new co-chair of the Appalachian Regional Commission, Gail Manchin. She says she has a plan to keep young people in the region. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Before the break, we heard from several young people talking about why they left West Virginia. This isn't a new story for us. People have been leaving Appalachia for decades to find work and opportunities outside our region. I grew up in Western Virginia, and like so many people my age, I couldn't wait to move away after high school. It only took about three months before I decided I wanted to eventually come back, and then another five years to actually land a job that brought me back to the mountains. Since coming back, I've never wanted to leave again. But that's not the case for a lot of my classmates or a lot of people who grew up in Appalachia generally. The places they once called home are struggling with a loss of working-age residents. They've been fighting for years to help improve the quality of life to win them back. But it's a hard grind. Appalachia has some hard challenges, ranging from environmental degradation to the sheer difficulty of getting to some of these communities. So can a federal agency make a real difference? Is funding from the federal government what Appalachia needs? After all, it's been sending money into the region since the War on Poverty in the 1960s. The Appalachian Regional Commission came out of that effort, and it just named the first ever West Virginian to lead the agency. Curtis Tate reports on what Gail Manchin's new job could mean for West Virginians and for Appalachia. West Virginia lost 60,000 residents in the most recent census count. Like much of Appalachia's coal region, the state has struggled to keep young people from leaving and to attract industries. And the historic dependence on coal mining has left the state pockmarked with abandoned mine sites and hollowed-out towns. As the struggle continues in Manchin's home state, the commission she now leads could help turn things around. And I think sometimes West Virginia has always felt that it was behind the eight ball or never quite getting its fair share. And I would say right now, uh, the stars have just lined up in our favor. And what we need to do is take full advantage of that while, while we have that opportunity. West Virginia has perhaps more influence in Washington than it has in decades. Manchin's husband, Senator Joe Manchin, is chairman of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Manchin is a key vote for President Joe Biden in an evenly divided Senate. Biden can't advance his priorities without the centrist Democrats' support. Senator Shelley Moore Capito is the senior Republican on the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee and is a lead negotiator on infrastructure legislation. Biden nominated Gail Manchin as the top federal official at the Appalachian Regional Commission in March, and the Senate confirmed her unanimously in April. The commission was established in 1965 as part of President Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. It spreads across parts of 12 states and all 55 of West Virginia's counties. For decades, the ARC was best known for building a network of improved highways throughout the region. The system is complete except for a few hundred miles. Manchin said the highways are a priority. However, she brings a background in human infrastructure to her job. She served as president of the State Board of Education and secretary for Education and the Arts. One of my priorities, of course, going back to my past, is education and education being the foundation. If we want to strengthen communities, and build economic vitality and build the workforce, you have to have an educated uh, populace. And we have to educate our young people, but more importantly, help steer them to the opportunities that are available. That's a change from the ARC's original mission, according to Ron Eller, a professor emeritus of history at the University of Kentucky. He's a West Virginia native who has written about Appalachia for nearly 50 years. Eller said in the beginning, the governors wanted to build physical infrastructure so they could cut ribbons and show that the region looked like other parts of the country. They didn't pay as much attention to human capital. 
In the last 20 years, however, we've begun to see that infrastructure and human capital go hand in hand in, in economic development. It takes much longer uh, to develop human resources and human capital. That kind of infrastructure has become even more important throughout Appalachia with the long-term structural decline of the region's coal industry. The ongoing loss of jobs at coal mines and power plants will mean that communities will need something to fill the void. Eller said Manchin's background makes her well-suited for the task. And frankly, I think that, that uh, that's a, a direction that the commission needs to take. Uh, there's a lot of promise for that within the, within the region. In addition to her education credentials, Manchin was West Virginia's first lady from 2004 to 2010. She knows most of the governors she'll be working with. One of those governors is West Virginia's Jim Justice, a Republican. Justice appointed Manchin to a cabinet post in his first term in 2017. Then things went sour. Justice, who ran as a Democrat with Joe Manchin's endorsement, switched parties. Their relationship deteriorated. There were rumblings that Joe Manchin would challenge Justice for the governor's mansion. Justice fired Gail Manchin in 2018. Now, Manchin said they have moved on. And Governor Justice certainly wants what's best for West Virginia. I certainly want what's best for West Virginia and that we know that working together, we can make some great things happen. Manchin said she'll begin touring the region to get ideas about how to help communities that stretch from southern New York to northeast Mississippi. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate. Curtis is our new energy and environment reporter as part of WVPB's partnership with the Ohio Valley Resource. And guess what? Curtis is a native of Kentucky who returned to Appalachia to take this job after living 14 years in the Northeast. Speaking of Kentucky, did you know the state has the most beef cattle of any state east of the Mississippi? But beef has been getting a grilling lately because of the industry's environmental impact. As Liam Niemeyer reports, some Kentucky cattlemen are working to reduce their climate hoofprint. One well-known area company has even joined the plant-based meat business. Most people would say Blake Munger is raising cattle out on his western Kentucky pasture but he sees it a bit differently. It's his grass that's really important. We'll start seeing the transition of healthier plants. So this is around this pond where, but just notice right, you hit a line, look at where that buttercup goes away. Now we're getting into healthier pasture. Munger has been rotating red and black Angus cattle between fields of fescue. And with the ongoing conversation around climate change emissions and the beef cattle industry, he points to his grass as a sustainable solution acting as a carbon sink to pull CO2 from the air. It's easier to think that you have the solution by getting rid of it instead of being like, well, what's the, how can we make it where it's actually beneficial? And making agriculture more sustainable is good, since agriculture and methane-producing livestock make up about 10% of the country's emissions. But scientists and climate advocates say more will have to be done with our food systems to avoid disastrous climate change. That includes reducing meat consumption significantly as the world's population grows and demands more meat products. That also includes alternative proteins on the market, an estimated $3 billion industry in 2020. Less than an hour's drive north of Munger's farm, a well-known local company is cashing in. Basically the same process we use for our, our ice cream. Dippin' Dots is a novelty ice cream company in Paducah, Kentucky that makes their pellet-like ice cream with cryogenic freezing technology. The company in 2018 started marketing its technology to other industries. Among those interested was the plant-based meats industry, who wanted an easier way to infuse fatty oils into their products. Chief Development Officer Stan Jones says that opportunity turned vital when the pandemic cut half of their traditional business as places like theme parks had to close. And that's what really helped us stay afloat uh, and keep things going uh, when the pandemic had shut down all of our ice cream markets. Jones believes the contracting work with the plant-based meats industry and other companies could be as big as their ice cream business within the next decade. So how will that go over in Kentucky's cattle country? Kentucky Agriculture Commissioner Republican Ryan Quarles says it's fine if Dippin' Dots wants to make that investment. But whether those plant-based products should be called meat is another question. It's not my job as a government official to tell companies what to do. 
except when it comes to making sure that consumers clearly know the difference between meat that was raised on a Kentucky farm versus an imitation that was put together in a factory. Whatever it's called, researchers studying climate change in food systems say we'll need both better beef production and meat alternatives. Tim Searchinger with the World Resources Institute says it's critical to reduce meat consumption as millions of more people see their incomes rise and demand meat products that could push emissions from meat production higher. But he says reducing meat consumption doesn't mean cattle farmers are going to go out of business anytime soon. So this is a kind of a global challenge that we need to reduce consumption, but I don't think it really threatens uh, American beef farmers because they, they are going to need to still produce beef. Searching Nurse says the push to eat less meat is likely going to be driven by the private sector instead of the government. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Liam Niemeyer. Growing food or producing milk might seem like a life-giving career. But farmers face unique challenges too, things that can lead to anxiety and depression. The Allegheny Front's Julie Grant takes a closer look. Lane Kind is the third generation to work on his family dairy farm in Butler County. They milk 350 Holstein and Jersey cows every morning and every evening. When schools and restaurants closed last year, more than 1,500 dairy farms in Pennsylvania had to dump their milk. We were lucky. We only had to dump our milk one time. Kind sees himself as a glass-half-full kind of guy, so that day he binged on chocolate chip cookies to cope. He runs this farm with his father, Dean Kind, who remembers his own father at times struggling financially. But he didn't talk about it much. You know, my dad's generation, they were tough. They didn't let things show. I never saw my dad shed a tear. He, you know, everything was kept inside. But often proud, tough farmers could actually benefit from talking about their problems. Dear struggling farmer, you don't know me, but I know you. This is Jessica Peters, who runs a dairy in Crawford County with her parents and brother. She says farming can be isolating. She started sharing her own struggles with mental health online, like this 2018 video. Most days are fine. You're doing what you love, what you were born to do. You're farming. You're taking care of your animals, your land, and most importantly, your family. And what you do is important. And that's enough. But then something goes wrong. She tells them she knows what it's like to work long hours doing the labor needed to feed people. Then a cow gets sick, a tractor breaks down, or it's too wet to plant, and the costs quickly spiral. But no one else seems to notice. She assures farmers. You are not alone. You are not the only one feeling the way you're feeling. I promise you that. Peter says she was nervous to post the video, but was overwhelmed by the response. You know, in the end, it got almost a million views and tens of thousands of shares. And I got thousands and thousands of messages over the next six months from people being like, you just put into words exactly how I feel. That was the first time I realized that mental health and agriculture needed to be talked about and how big of a deal it was. And the numbers bear that out. Farmer suicide rates are among the highest of any profession. There has been a movement to help. The latest federal farm bill was the first to provide funding to support farmers' mental health assistance. In the northeastern U.S., it's being used to create a farmer-led resource network and to help those often overlooked, like black, indigenous, and young farmers. Pennsylvania State Senator Elder Vogel thinks more needs to be done. He and his wife recently took over their family's 147-year-old farm in Beaver County. It wasn't just the dairies that faced losses during the pandemic, he says. Hog farmers did too. You're watching your baby pigs having to be smacked in the head and killed because you have no place to send them when it's time to go. I mean... You know, if you're a farmer, you care about animals, I, you know, consider and get choked up about that right now myself. It's not just the past year that's been hard. Between 2012 and 2017, 900 dairies closed in Pennsylvania. Vogel says shutting down a long-standing family farm is tough on a farmer. If you're the fourth or fifth generation of a farm and the farm's going down the drain on your watch to lose it, why, well, that's just a huge Wait on your shoulders. Vogel started working to get funding in the state budget to help farmers with mental health issues, but it got held up once the pandemic hit, and he's looking to try again in the coming months. 
Some want the state to do more. Pennsylvania is a leader in a lot of other ways in agriculture, but we're not a leader in terms of this. 28-year-old Morgan Livingston is a fifth-generation farmer who grew up on an Angus beef farm. She says she had anxiety as early as elementary school. Luckily, my parents and some professionals and teachers in our, our life recommended that I get started in counseling at a young age. That inspired her to get a degree in social work, and Livingston says those skills were helpful when ownership of her family farm transitioned from her elderly grandfather to her parents. In difficult times like that, she wants Pennsylvania to provide services like those available in places like New York and Michigan. Each state is different, but a lot of them are like making referrals for farmers. Like if you call in and you need counseling, they'll help refer you to a service in your area. Some of them have hotlines. Some of them do training on stress management and coping skills. But Livingston says farmers will only accept help from someone who also knows about the challenges of farming. Farmers need to know that the person that they're talking to in like a mental health capacity at least has some understanding of their life and like the unique challenges they face. The Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture prioritized farmers' mental health during the pandemic, according to spokesperson Shannon Powers. The department has held online events, and its website includes a link to resources like a suicide prevention hotline run by the Department of Human Services. They do talk with people in crisis, but they also get them to local help in their area. Power says this assistance is not specifically targeted to talk with farmers, but that's not a service the Department of Agriculture can provide. It's not a simple issue, and it's sort of out of the realm of agriculture expertise to provide mental health services at this point. Penn State Extension Service has started working on these issues. Early last year, it started the Mental Health First Aid Training Service. While it trains people in many fields, organizer Cynthia Pollock says so far about 100 people connected with the agricultural community have gone through the training. More of this work is needed, she says, remembering a call from a farmer in distress and hearing a police officer talk to him in the background. And I hear this police officer, and it was in a little small town, so it was a local little police officer going, just pull yourself up. You can get over this. You're fine. And so I'm sort of training the police officer while I'm supporting the farmer going, those feelings are real, and they're allowed to have those feelings. And right now, they can't pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Pollock wants more people who see farmers regularly, like veterinarians and feed haulers, trained on how to notice and assist if the person is struggling. According to Pollock, Penn State has applied for a national grant to expand this work. Advocates want the message to get out to people who produce the nation's food. It's okay to struggle. And then to make sure there's help available. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Julie Grant. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. My grandpa raised cattle when I was growing up. Both home in the Allegheny Highlands and where I live now in Floyd County, a lot of families pass down traditions by working with livestock. And not just cattle either. Some families have built traditions around spinning and weaving, usually among women. But that wool doesn't just magically appear. It's part of the tradition, and it starts with raising the sheep. Our next story is about the passing of that knowledge and about honoring a legacy. Folkways reporter Heather Nyday has more. If you've ever tried to shear a sheep, you know it takes some practice. Here's how Margaret Bruning describes it. Somebody's going to get cut. (laughs) Either me or the sheep or probably both of us. And I said, I'm going to sweat my guts out. And the sheep's going to be upside down a lot. She's not going to be that comfortable. Um, And I'm not really proficient, so it's going to look kind of awkward. and It'll be okay. (laughs) Five years ago, Margaret and her husband David were living in L.A. But they were tired of the city. So they sold most of their stuff, packed up what was left, and traveled the country, working on organic farms along the way. They finally stopped in rural West Virginia. It's 
Very wild here. It's like the Wild West, except we're not west of the Mississippi. Now, Margaret isn't a novice when it comes to farming. She actually grew up on a goat farm. I grew up mostly in rural dairy country in upstate New York. But she didn't know a lot about raising sheep. That's something she's learning from Kathy Evans, one of the owners of Evans Knob Farm in Preston County, West Virginia. We're living on my husband's family farm. It's been in the family for, well, my grandchildren will be the sixth generation that's been on this farm. It's a good thing, too, because within a year of buying a farm in Randolph County, West Virginia, Margaret and her husband suddenly became the owners of a small flock of gray and black Romanoff sheep. And I've been stumbling through, and a lot of it's been very hard lessons, how to keep them healthy, the right decisions to make with tiny newborn lambs. Nearly 20% of newborns die before they're weaned, usually in the first 10 days of life. So Margaret has turned to Kathy for all kinds of advice, everything from tending her flock to managing budgets. So that's Kathy. She's a seasoned market gardener, farmer. Her head is full of a lot of stuff. Me? I have made my sheep almost into my friends, and I, and I probably shouldn't do that. And whenever I need to toughen up, yeah, I think about Kathy. I think that she would just buck up. And that's what she's coached me on. Another thing Kathy's coached her on? Sheep shearing. Normally, you're bent over the animal, holding it with one hand while shearing the fleece with the other. It's awkward. And it's physically hard. But Kathy taught her a technique that requires less upper body strength. We take them from standing on all fours to sitting on their butt, and we cradle them between our legs. So she watched that step. She helped me get the sheep set up and then um, watched me do the shearing, and she trimmed hooves. Those lessons are a part of a master apprentice program that Kathy and Margaret are working on together called Sheep to Shawl. Shearing is just one step. The fleece has to be washed and dried, then combed and carded before it's ready for the spinning wheel. Your hands are doing one thing and um, your foot's doing another thing. So I'm controlling the diameter of the yarn and the number of times it twists with my right hand and my left hand is doing a process called drafting. So I'm pulling the fiber back so that there's not like a great big clump that goes through at once. Once the spinning is done, Kathy winds the yarn into one large loop until she has a full skein. Then she dips it in hot water to set the twist of the yarn and hangs it to dry. Then it's ready for knitting, crocheting, or weaving on a loom, like the one in Kathy's studio. These are the tools and techniques Kathy is passing along to Margaret through their apprenticeship. But it goes beyond that. I hope to give Margaret the confidence and the skills that she needs to be able to do this sheep to shawl process. Margaret and I were already friends before we did this, mm -hmm. but just to, to strengthen that through this process. And she knows that I'm here anytime she needs me. Kathy demonstrated that on a night not long ago. One of Margaret's ewes was struggling to give birth. She was afraid she would lose the mother and lamb. So she called Kathy. David and I were both like pulling as hard as we could pull. <laughs> Kathy could tell they had to act quickly. I knew exactly what they were facing. I could, I could picture in my mind what was happening and what they needed to do. Kathy just put everything down. And she spent an hour on the phone with us. And it was like, Margaret, you can do this. You know, just encouraging her to, you can do this. Take a deep breath, give David the phone. We can do this together. Because I'm thinking, I'm two and a half hours away from her. I can't get to her in time to save this lamb and you. She has got to trust me and do what I tell her to do or we're gonna lose both of them. 
I walked her through the process. We had a beautiful ram lamb. She saved you. She said, we did it. And I said, well, of course we did it. I felt this real true confidence having her by my side. Kathy knew that losing either animal that night would have been devastating for Margaret. The sheep had belonged to Margaret's mother. She left the flock to Margaret when she passed away a few years ago. You know, it's not been that long since her mother passed. And it's a grieving process. It takes, it takes as long as it takes. As long as that original flock of sheep is with Margaret, she still has a piece of her mom. I feel so grateful in having met Kathy because she possesses those qualities that my mom has. And she utilizes those qualities and she's been so kind <laughs> towards me and very, very patient. Margaret sees her partnership with Kathy as a continuation of the traditions of so many women before her. And it's also a tribute to her mother and the legacy she's passed on to her. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Heather Day. Heather's story is a part of our Inside Appalachia Folkways project. We'll be hearing a lot more from these reporters in the coming months. From the music hub of Bristol, Tennessee, to modern-day herbalists, to people who make boat paddles by hand. There's such a wide range of stories that we've yet to even hear. So stay tuned. And if you miss an episode on the air, we get it. Life is busy. You can always subscribe to the podcast so you can listen on your own time. Whether you're doing farm chores or taking a walk through the forest, wherever it is you listen. Find Inside Appalachia any place you get your podcasts. Our last story is all about caring for wild animals. Last year, 3,700 animals were treated at the Wildlife Center of Virginia, a high-tech veterinary hospital in Waynesboro that cares for creatures brought in from all over the region. As Sandy Hausman reports, baby animals are raised so they can return to the wild. Baby bears actually purr when they're content. After a bottle of formula, for example, hundreds of orphaned cubs have been fed over the years at the Wildlife Center of Virginia, where rehabilitator Shannon Mazeroski works. We generally keep them for about a year, a little over, because that's how long they would stay with their mothers. They're cute and they look cuddly, but once they're weaned, the staff will have minimal contact with bears. The center's president, Ed Clark, says they're kept in a specially designed enclosure and rarely see people. Bears habituate very easily, and the the cases where we've had the uh, wildlife authorities or conservation police bring in a cub that somebody's had as an illegal pet or tried to turn into a pet, if they've had it even just as short a time as a few days or a week, the chances of that cub completely developing awareness of humans is dramatically reduced, and we could not release them. This spring, the center released the last of 21 bears it raised over about 16 months. They can weigh up to 150 pounds, and head veterinarian Cara Pierce says getting them ready to go is hard work. They're big black bears now. They have to be fully anesthetized in order for us to move them, to work on them, do a physical exam, make sure they're healthy. We switch out their ear tags. We do some blood work on them. And the Department of Wildlife Resources comes and loads them up in a truck and drives them back into the world and lets them go. They're released in wildlife management areas all over the state to places chosen by bear biologists in each area. I'm ready when you are. Go for it. When they're first offered their freedom, these two bears seem wary, studying the neighborhood before jumping from the truck and rushing into the woods. They linger there, studying the trees, as if amazed by the sheer number of places to climb. The Wildlife Center also finds it challenging to care for baby owls. Here again is veterinarian Kara Pierce. They're very, very cute, but they're hard to raise because they're really at high risk for imprinting. So they need to basically see their mom or their dad to learn, oh, I'm an owl. So we've been working really hard lately to re-nest those patients when they come in. They'll even create a new nest if the original has fallen down. Then watch to see if the mother comes back. If not, they'll call on an older owl, Papa Jiho, short for great horned owl, He's got a bad wing, so he's been living at the center for years. 
He can't go back to the wild, but he can serve as a surrogate parent. They sit next to him, and it's kind of fun to watch them, actually. They are more curious and active than you would think. They walk around, and they mess with things, and they tear stuff apart. But mainly, he's teaching them how to be appropriately fearful of us and how to recognize their own species so that when they're released, they can mate with their appropriate species and not view humans as them. When COVID hit, the center thought it would see fewer patients. But founder and president Ed Clark says the pandemic prompted many people to spend more time outdoors. Finding more animals, baby animals around their yards, they were hiking in the woods, and the opportunity to pick that animal up and bring it to the wildlife center was probably the least boring thing they had done in a month. As a result, the center reports a record number of animals treated this year. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Sandy Hausman in Waynesboro, Virginia. Sandy originally filed a version of that story for WVTF and Radio IQ. What kind of an ending can we pull off after that? (laughs) And I think we all need to hear one more bear cub noise. How about you? Have you found any wild animals close to home? We'd love to see your photos. Email us at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org or send them to us on Twitter at in Appalachia. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burbs. And Dog and Gun. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Hultz is our associate producer. And our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Sander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.